grab your Bibles, electronic, paper, otherwise, for our scripture reading. Father in heaven, we are a needy people, and we trust you to provide. We trust that you are good and loving and taking care of us. And so in that spirit, we bring requests before you this morning. God, I want to lift up our sister Chloe and Will this morning, and possibly in physically, spiritually, that you would be restored to us. God, we pray for the, this church that 
Take our hearts, God, and, and tune into your word, into your scriptures, that we might hear them, that we might obey them, that we might live them out as a living and breathing testimony to your son, Jesus, in his person, in whose name we pray, amen. On March 6th of this year, uh, Kamari Belmont breathed a, a sigh of relief and then breathed his last. See, in, in the spring of 2015, Belmont had been picked up by the Chicago PD on robbery and attempted murder charges after he and two friends allegedly shot a man named Terrell Marshall in, in one part of town before moving to uh, uh, the Loop and robbing another woman. The woman had her cell phone stolen, and the police were able to track Belmont and his friends using one of those find your device features. And, and when one of the suspects allegedly lunged, lunged at the officer, he was, according to the union, accidentally shot by a police officer. That man ran off, but Belmont and one friend were taken into custody. And the third man was arrested later when he sought treatment for his bullet wound at a local hospital. Belmont was taken to Cook County Jail, uh, but three weeks later, things turned worse for everyone. The man they shot developed complications from his injury, and so weeks after the incident happened, he died. And that meant that Belmont was now more than an alleged attempted murderer, he was an alleged murderer. So why was he breathing a sigh of relief on March 6th? Well, for a number of reasons that are not all clear, 
but seem to stem from some combination of the slow process of making a final determination of homicide as the cause of Sorel Marshall's death, the slow grinding wheels of bureaucracy, and simple prosecutorial oversight, Amari Belmont spent over a year waiting for a trial that never came. In Illinois, that violated his right to a speedy trial. And so on January 26th of this year, the court ruled that the charges needed to be dropped. But the charge of robbery wasn't thrown out. And as one might expect with somebody considered very dangerous, but still necessarily in jail, the bail was not insubstantial. And it took over a month for friends and family to raise $10,000 to bring him, which they did on March 6th. Strange case, but Belmont was free on a technicality that really doesn't happen very often, but it did. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, sadly, and perhaps ironically, a few minutes after a friend picked him up from the Cook County Jail, Belmont was gunned down at a stoplight. He was able to exit the vehicle, but soon collapsed and bleeding to death. Police say it looked like a hit. Belmont's own lawyer thinks differently. He doesn't believe word had gotten around yet that Belmont was out. Rather, he thinks that Belmont was simply the victim of this sort of random, senseless violence that he was accused of perpetrating. And we may never know the truth. But assuming that all the allegations were correct and accurate, and he didn't get a trial, which we only know is an accusation, it's an allegation. But it's possible that Belmont participated in a murder, was going to face no consequences for that murder, and then was murdered himself. And that's a lot of injustice to swallow. We know murder is wrong. In fact, it's, it's such a generally accepted tenet that we are likely to overlook the commandment, you shall not murder. So it's, it, it's so clear that we use murder as a stand-in for bad guy. We say things like, I'm a pretty good person. It's not like I'm a murderer or anything. And if you question someone about how well they keep the Ten Commandments, this is the one I imagine they'd point to first, more often than not, that well, this is the one they actually do keep. Yeah, yeah, maybe I'm not perfect on those other ones, but I've never killed anybody. It's sort of the, the de facto go-to, we can agree on this bad deed that's still okay to mention in polite company. And yet, despite all that agreement, with, with record homicide rates in Chicago and in Cleveland and, and in a number of other cities, you might wonder what our society's actual commitment is to this command. But it, in truth, if we properly grasp what God is saying here and what the scriptures say generally on the topic, I think we'll discover the situation is even more dire than we realize. And, and for this command, properly understood, demands a radical commitment to the sanctity of human life. This commandment, when we understand it, demands a radical commitment to the sanctity of human life. And to unpack this, we're going to first look at what this command meant to Israel as God spoke this into the lives of 
of a Bronze Age Israelite. Second, what it means for those of us who are in Christ, Christians. And then where does that leave us? What do we, what do, we do with that? And we'll actually going to blur together a little bit, but that's the general outline we're going to follow. So what did it mean to Israel? Well, to understand what this commandment meant to Israel, when, when Yahweh gave it to the new nation through the prophet Moses, we need to understand the meaning of murder. That goes without saying. Uh, in, in Hebrew, this command is only two words. Uh, one one uh, commentator suggests that a better translation might be never murder, just to kind of capture the short succinctness of this statement. And so if you've got two words and one is murder and one is no, uh, I, I'm guessing most of us don't debate what no means. So if we're going to understand it, we've got one word that we need to tackle. Murder is a different story because even if the Bible had been written in English, which it wasn't, we'd probably still be having this discussion. Because although we all agree that murder is wrong, we don't all agree about what constitutes murder. And, and even once we decide what constitutes murder, we debate how bad one murder is compared to another murder. And so we have aggravated murder, which I guess is like extra bad murder, um, plain murder, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, negligent homicide, aggravated vehicular homicide, vehicular homicide, and vehicular manslaughter, and that's the rubric just in Ohio. Other jurisdictions and states have different schemes. So we do need to address this. What are we, so what are we talking about? And, and it's complicated a bit by the fact that some translations, including the uh, long popular King James Version, translates the word that, that our, our Bibles in front of us say murder, the one I'm working out of, uh, but some translations use the term kill, thou shalt not kill, is what the KJV reads. And that sort of translation has sometimes given rise to a, a sort of uh, pacifism in which all killing, or at least most killing, is prohibited. So, so what gives? Is it, is it kill or, or is it murder? A and what does it mean anyway? Well, Hebrew has three main words for, for killing, and this is really a sort of morbid, macabre uh, topic, yeah? But it, it Hebrew has three main words for killing, and going through them kind of will help us see how this word differs from the other one. So bear with me through a little uh, Hebrew. The, the first word for killing is one of the first words any Hebrew student learns. It's the tikal. And that's because it's a really regular verb. If you've ever studied a language, and I'm guessing most everyone in here has studied a second language at some point, uh, you know that you learn a language and you learn verbs. Verbs can be all over the place, and so usually you take a verb that's really simple, that doesn't do any funny stuff in different tenses and different moods. It kind of follows all the rules. And in Hebrew, that verb is kill. And so a lot of verb discussion talks about killing things in Hebrew classes. Um, but it's, it's an interesting word because it's very rarely used. It's just very regular. Uh, so it's not a very useful term. It's roughly equivalent to the English term kill. It's generic, but it's not really used much. It's not what we have. The most common word that the Bible uses 
is also used, learned fairly early, because how often it's used is mutu. And it generally means die. But Hebrew has this weird way that you can make a, a verb causative, so you can cause something to die. And if you cause something to die, you're effectively killing it, right? And so that's the most common word that's used. It can be used in a lot of different situations, oftentimes used in judicial contexts, like uh, capital punishment and things like that. But it's very broadly used with a lot of different nuances. And it's also not what we're dealing with here. What we're dealing with in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5 is something very specific. And there just isn't a clear term in English to capture this sense perfectly. It comes up less than 50 times in the Bible. Almost all of those are in the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Almost all of them are in those uh, books. And in every case except two, it refers to what we might call an unjust killing. And what I mean by an unjust killing, I'm choosing my words very carefully. What I mean by an unjust killing is a killing that is unwarranted or otherwise uncalled for. See, justice, to put it simply, is to receive what is due. Injustice is not receiving what is due. So on the positive side, if you agree to work for 40 hours at $10 an hour, uh, it's just to be paid $400. If you're paid less than that, it's an injustice. Even, even if, you're, if you're paid just a fraction less, if you're paid $399.98, that's an injustice. You didn't receive what is due to you. Uh, on the more negative side, you say you, you steal something. And we can, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more with this band on stealing. But you should, at a minimum, be required to restore the value of the stolen property, right? And anything less than restoring the value of what was stolen would be an injustice to the person who had lost. So when I say that ratzak is an unjust killing, I mean that it is killing in which the victim has done nothing to merit being killed, or has otherwise not placed themselves in a situation in which the killing could be a reasonably expected risk, like, say, joining the army and being in the middle of a war. Uh, Ratzak is never used in those types of contexts. So killing isn't a specific enough term. If we're going to draw a line between killing and murder, the line is, is definitely much closer to murder in terms of an English term. So it's, it's a better English translation. It just doesn't capture it fully. It can't be killed. It can't mean killed because just 25 verses later, and, and remember the verses and the paragraph division and stuff, we, we put those in there to make it easier to read. So just, just a few words later, God, Yahweh, actually commands Israel to kill murderers. And so authorizes a, a, an ancient capital punishment. In fact, God commands capital punishment for a number of offenses. More, frankly, than we practice as a society. Although 
I would argue that the standard of proof in ancient Israel was much higher than our standard of proof in our courts today. But that's another discussion. I'm not going to get into a debate on the merits of capital punishment. It would be a much more complicated debate than just simply what happened in the Old Testament. Um, but we do need to acknowledge that some killing was acceptable, perhaps even mandatory. And so we can't say that this word just means thou shalt not kill. But murder is too specific of a term. When you look at how the word is used, you notice that uh, ratzak covers every form of criminal homicide we have in the state of Ohio. And likely includes a wide range of, of cases that we would refrain from prosecuting under normal circumstances. It includes, for example, accidental killings. In fact, if we look through the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, we can see that the Ten Commandments are sort of summary commands. And they're fleshed out in more detail as you go forward. There's case laws, they're called, that, that kind of explain to the Israelites how were they to apply these very specific laws that you have in the Ten Commandments and other places. How do you flesh those out in the real world? Well, suppose such and such happens. Here's how you deal with it. Suppose such and such happens. Here's how you deal with it. And it gives them a framework or a rubric for applying the law to their context. And if you look at um, those cases where the idea of killing or, or murder are fleshed out, you get this idea that this is a very expansive prohibition, and the penalties are rather severe. For example, the law does not distinguish between murder one and murder two, like on a cop drama. It does not distinguish between a serial killer and the winner of a particularly brutal bar fight that ends in death. Both are guilty of, to use the, the noun term, retzah. The primary distinction that's made between types of retzah is between retzah with enmity and retzah without enmity. So if you're angry, if you're harboring bitterness and full of rage, and so you lash out in a way that causes death, that's one sort of murder. We call that retzak one. Maybe you didn't mean to kill the person, but you did intend to harm them. It's a sort of intended hostility. Still murder under this on the other hand, suppose your neighbor walks behind your car and you don't see them, or at least you don't have enough time after you see them to react, and the neighbor is killed. You didn't have any enmity toward them. There was no hostility between you and them. You weren't intending any sort of harm on them at all. There wasn't any hint of intentionality to the action, and yet that would still be classified as a retzak. We call that retzak too. And I'm 
penalties were different for version one and version two. So they're both a little bit scary. Does that seem like a hard thing, though? That both an incidental and accidental killing might be lumped together with cold-blooded murder? But here's the thing. If a person's life is brought to an end when it is undeserved, that is a great big thing. Isn't it? I feel like in our culture today, the whole idea of justice is such a buzzword that on one hand, there's often people that are willing to throw around justice and injustice at the slightest possible grievances so that it almost loses all meaning. And then there, there's people of other political persuasions that uh, reject almost the entire notion of justice or injustice as uh, an overreaction Yet it's a biblical concept, and so we need to, we need to approach it from biblical eyes. We, we don't want to approach this from the cultural lens of the political left, and we don't want to approach this from the political lens of the cultural right. We want to approach this from the biblical lens of what God says to us in Scripture. And what God says is that if someone loses their life who does not warrant having their life taken from them, it is an injustice. supposed to function. Human life created in God's own image is incredibly valuable. Incredibly precious. It was so valuable in fact that it could only be accounted for by taking the killer's life. And if that seems like a hard thing, Consider the significance of that fact. That means that human life, even though it is so incredibly precious, that even accidentally taking it must be punished. God loves justice even more. He is a God of justice. He is a just for these, these two different types of uh, rexah are, on, on one hand, if, if it's murder with enmity, if it's murder with intention, uh, you know, a desire to harm, whether the actual murder was an accident or not, doesn't matter. Uh, that penalty was capital punishment. For the more incidental, accidental types of death, uh, God said that a penalty was still deserved. In fact, we see that, that that's not even the law. That predates the law. That's Genesis chapter 9. Perhaps you, you recognize it. Uh, you remember that passage. Noah is leaving the ark. God is making a covenant with all creation. Noah and his sons and, and their wives. So these eight people are the only eight people in the, the land anymore. And, and God says to Noah, 
for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man his own. But in the case of of somebody who accidentally or inaccidentally killed, God provided a rescue. It's called these cities of refuge. They were places where a person who who uh, uh, accidentally committed one of these acts could go and the cities were commanded to protect the person and to preserve their life from anyone. They didn't have these structured judicial systems like we see in the modern world today. And so oftentimes uh, the, the execution of the capital punishment order would fall to the next of kin. In other words, if you're your brother was murdered, and you're the, the oldest brother remaining, it might be your responsibility to ensure that the execution took place. Or it could be the product of the local community, depending on the offense. And so this community, these cities of refuge, were protected for a time from the, uh, from the consequences of sin. Until such time as the high priest over Israel dies. And the high priest over Israel dies, that person is they were able to live freely and to carry on their lives, but within certain constraints. They had to live within certain cities for their own protection. But it also could, uh, to some degree, uh, require them to lose their lives as well. And yet, somehow, the, the death of the high priest satisfied skin on this because I want us to appreciate the breadth of this command, not the size of it. Let me give you a case in point. Consider the case of Philando Castillo outside Indianapolis. In Philando Castillo's case, there's no evidence of, of wrongdoing, though the officer testified that he thought Castillo was Some would argue that the police officer must be dishonest in a traffic stop and that Castillo should have been more cautious about how he handled his body. Perhaps he should have kept his hands on the wheel or after he told the officer what had done to him, told the officer what had done to him. Uh, Perhaps he should have been uh, sedated. Perhaps that might have been wise courses of action to engage them in folly in different categories on flight from the police. This might have been a wiser course of action. But nevertheless, as far as we know, as far as evidence has been presented, Castile did nothing to warrant being killed. There was, there was no action that he took that warranted his death Nothing that he did or said that would warrant his life being taken from him. That doesn't seem to be in dispute by any side. 
that's the case, then we have to say that the loss of Solanda Castillo's life is grave injustice. Some argue that the policeman's actions amounted to murder. The prosecutor charged the officer, Ramon Magallanes, with manslaughter. Magallanes, as, as we all probably know, was, was acquitted. But whether it was murder or manslaughter, another charge or no charge at all, it's clear that the action fell under the biblical rubric of rasha. In a different sort of issue, maybe the Jukox issue, as it's frequently called. Douglas Stewart points out that there really is not any exception to this rule. Intentionally ending another person's life is ratzah. So, suicide, euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide are all right out. They're not merely incidental killings, but they're intentional killings. And as such, they profane God's image, which is stamped on each one of us. And so they are prohibited by the command. They are ratzah. I'll make one more for you. In 2014, according to Guttmacher Institute, 926,000 people in our state Guttmacher Institute, by the way, is strongly in favor of wide and, and uh, deep abortion access. So the statistics are meaningful. Uh, this, this is not an inflated number by a, an opposition group, which is kind of a friendly group that is sharing lots of Facebook pages about it. That's nearly one million children, babies killed in 2014. I, I couldn't find a more recent number, but I think that number is plenty. That was the number for the decade I will be scandalized. That was the number for a year. These children had their lives intentionally taken from them by a doctor despite having done no action that warrants their death. That is the definition of an unjust hard to know whether these sorts of cases, uh, in, in, you know, as we go through our modern examples, we could come up with others. Would they have fallen under what we call uh, Retzat 1 or Retzat 2? Would they, would they be, you know, enmity cases or would they not be enmity cases? Uh, you know, the, the idea, especially when you bring guns into these equations um, and, and they can go off with a hair trigger and, and what do you mean by intentionality? The first case, again, is, a, is Red Sox 1, uh, you know, so to speak, is in capital punishment for the execution. But Red Sox 2 is when women leave and find a, a sort of sanctuary city for the husband and child. But I, 
not concerned with classifying those cases. I'm not right now concerned with trying to dictate what we should do to those people. Um, that's not the point. Those are different perspectives for a different day. What I want us to see is the breadth of what this prohibition is about. God does not desire, in this sense, life to be taken for any reason. It attains him, and it hates it, and it is a grave injustice to him. that mean in Christ? None of the Ten Commandments are fully abrogated uh, for the Christian. And, and while Christians are not under the law, but are under grace, it doesn't mean that we can break the law at will. Rather, it means that we're no longer condemned by the law. And it means that we no longer need to despair when we fail to keep the law. But the demands on how a Christian ought to live are elevated. Christ never destroyed the moral law. Instead, he showed that intent existed on a much higher plane. So did with murder. Zach read for us uh, earlier this morning from Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in his uh, Sermon on the Mount is really kind of uh, building upon the law. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, speaking of Moses and the Israelites in the desert, that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Consider that for just a second. This is an absolutely radical statement. Whereas in the Old Testament, God instructed the Israelites to not kill. No unjust killing, that is. No unjust killing. It didn't matter if it was accidental or the intentional product of enmity. It was prohibited as a retta. But what Jesus says is that the enmity itself is retta. Enmity, you could say, is the spirit of violence. Murder is the most insidious outcome of violence. Maybe some of us are better at others than others at killing people, but the spirit of violence is there. But Jesus says, on this point of desire for heart, what about the exact repercussions of your actions? After all, I mean, that's what the Christian says. So what's the difference between the act of murder What's the difference on this medical question? It's hard to say, surely. Yet, oddly, our justice system seems to work this way. We fail at these acts of violence, but we can give X number of years to do that and still fail. Because I'm successful. 
left target is the FCC media. This one should be this one. given. Why? Because God took on flesh. Because he lived as we live, but without enmity, without anger towards a brother, and certainly not with any unjust killing. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And went to the cross. He was murdered for our murders. He died the death that we ought to die. So that those who place their trust in him, turn to him in faith and repent of their murders and wickedness, Savior. So if we are Christians, we embrace sinners. We embrace even murderers. Because we know that even as Martin Luther said, there but by the grace of God go I. John writes, the Apostle John, Jesus close disciple wrote in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We as Christians know that reality better than most else in the world. That our hearts are desperately wicked, that they are inclined towards sin, that we have hated guilty of murder, whether it has come out in our actual actions or not, we're just as guilty. And yet, we've been forgiven and forgiven and forgiven, showered and sheltered by the grace of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. Paul says of, of Christians, we talks about how the world lives and he talks about the various sins that they're in and 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 you know they 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 hate their parents and they're murderous and they're evil and they do this and they do that and he says and you guys were like that once too if we're christians in this room and we're, and we're part of the the church of jesus christ we look back in our lives and say yeah i too was Jesus, I have been redeemed and 
Christians need to be if we are going to reveal our Father to a dying world. We need to be people who have an absolutely radical commitment and pursuit of human life, even as our Heavenly Father has a radical commitment and sanctity of human life. That means we need to live other people, and that starts with destroying enmity in our hearts. It starts with destroying anger and hostility that we have toward others in our hearts. Now, if you are not a Christian, if you have never truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, repent of your sins. What I'm telling you now is going to go over your head. And if you try to do it, you're going to fall into a trap of legalism, of trying to make yourself right with God by doing stuff. But it's not how it works. That's the entry point. That's the starting point. You have to get that first. You have to get the law first. But for those of us who are in Christ, this is not a to-do list of, of everything I've got to do to be right now with God. No, you're made right by the grace of Jesus Christ. You are already positionally okay with him. And by that grace, you are strengthened and pushed toward righteousness. And so it gives us a freeing ability to live for Christ, knowing that we're not condemned when we fall short, and yet the encouragement to push forward in the spirit toward more. And what we need to do to reflect the the character of our Savior Jesus Christ and the, the love of our Heavenly Father is we do need to look at our lives and start with where is the enmity. I'm going to assume, but maybe I shouldn't because we, we don't have anyone in the room maybe that has you know been here in jail for murder or, or killed someone and got away with it. But if that's you, uh, grace covers that also. But just as evil, just as bad, although our society doesn't say so, but just as evil, just as bad, Jesus says, is that hatred, is that enmity. And regardless of whether we have physically taken a life or not, we fall into that category, I'm sure. Where do we have enmity? Who, who do we have disagreements with? Who are we... Uh, on the outs with, you know, enmity isn't necessarily, uh, you know, screaming and shouting. It's not necessarily physical altercation. It's sort of a a, a, a spirit of, of hostile distance. It's sort of like, you, you know, we've been reading so much about North Korea in the news lately because they're, they're ramping up their missile production, they're ramping up their nuclear production, 
and, and you know, on the border between North Korea and South Korea is what's called the demilitarized zone, or the, the DMZ. And it's a gap uh, on either side of the border between these two countries and where there's no military presence. And then you cross that, that line, and it's one of the most massively uh, militarized areas of the entire world. Uh, all sorts of armaments and soldiers. So it's a, it's a bit of a farce. And, and but in this, this middle land, this DMZ, where there's no soldiers and no weapons, there is this intense hostility. There's suspicion. There's distrust. You can watch the videos. You know, when, when somebody comes, uh, especially from the south, and they come up and, and they go to the DMZ and, and they want to see the area. Sometimes the North Korean soldiers will, will bring up binoculars or cameras and they'll stare at them with binoculars and constantly take their, their picture to intimidate them. There's no actual hostility going on, but there's a spirit of hostility there. This, this tremendous tension uh, uh, of hatred between these nations. The, the possibility of a spark that could blow the whole thing up at any given moment. That's sort of the idea of enmity. And we have that in our hearts. And my guess is some of us in this room have that in our hearts this moment on a regular basis with, with some other person. And what does Jesus say? If you're offering your gift at the altar, you're, you're about to take communion. You're about to put your, your offering at the church into the offering box. And you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. God so desires, so hates this, this um, lack of respect for the image of God in one another that he would rather not receive sacrifices from us under the old covenant. That he would rather not receive offerings from us if it meant that we are not taking care of how we treat other people. That's pretty radical. You see, relationships with another person like the demilitarized zone in the Koreas where no there's no armies here but we're not really going to have anything to do with each other we're always a little bit suspicious of the other person such that we're not going to have any communication or any outreach to them akin to murder in some ways. You can tell her, this is a Ryan Hunter video, you can tell her, it says that the opposite of, of love is not hate. The opposite of love is suspicion. Put it this way, because I know several of you have been hard to love, hard love to love. It's just sometimes you, you kind of hate to have anything to do with them. Several years ago, I was a little bit 
grow inside the political situation. Grow inside the political situation. Don't worry if what you're going to say or what you're going to think before the world is liberal enough or whether it's conservative enough. But we have to speak out for the sanctity of human life. And in some cases, that probably means you're going to say some things that sound to your friends and your family as radically conservative. And that probably means that sometimes you're going to say things to your friends and family that are radically liberal. They're going to sound that way, but they're not because they're radically biblical. Because I say, if you, if you follow like these party lines, I'm telling you, both these parties, you know, you can name one, we've got follow them out fully. And we can debate, are one better than the other on certain things, but I'm not going to get into that. But if you, if you take and poke the line of these thinkers, look, they're not getting their political views from the Bible. And, and that might be a lost cause anyway, because I'm not saying that the Bible exists to give us our political views. But my point is, is that as long as we're man-made philosophy, it's going to be inaccurate at the point. It's going to be imperfect at points. And we need to speak truth into a culture and a world that doesn't have truth. And then we need to beat people up with our Bibles and slam them over the head with it. But we show them an absolute love and consideration for justice. And an absolute hatred, not toward any other person, but toward injustice itself. When they see that, they see a reflection of the God who made them, and he's calling them angels. And then when we tell them about King Jesus, who died on the cross for their iniquities, so that they could be made just in the eyes of their heavenly Father, they see Jesus. And it's to him. Not just a, an abstract idea. Like it's got legs and it's going somewhere. And we show them the gospel in our lives and in our witness. They preach the gospel to them and they let God radically transform them and they see just how good he's meant to be. And you be super careful, even if you're you're seeing an axe in the woods. What your neighbor, just just be extra careful about it, guys. Don't be stupid about it because heaven forbid that you get too close to your neighbor and you swing your axe back and it accidentally hits your neighbor and kills him. That is not that is not dangerous and just death. So so even then, just be extra careful about how much you care. I mean, we spend our lives as any other human outsider because I love the life. know that I've harbored bitterness and harbored enmity and harbored hostility and in my heart toward other people. Sometimes, God, we even, we get burned by people and, and when we justify our hostility, we feel 
this way because of what they did to me. We don't own the fact that 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 hostility is evil. Justify our evil. Try to excuse our evil. In our divisions, God, in the body of Christ, our demilitarized zones that we that we create on the basis of race, class, economics, politics, geography. Biblical justice, I'm not saying liberal justice, I'm saying conservative justice. Not the agendas that we see that we've often had in ACG, but justice, proportionality, and fairness that is rooted in love and relationship and character. When we tear down those walls, even within this room and in our hearts with our neighbors, sense of peace even while we know that hostility is going to spread us across the world. Forgive us for the ways that we try to demean ourselves or excuse our evil. May we just have peace that is so given to reconciliation and reconciliation and so rooted in our very scattered our debts upon the wind and glory to the one God's murdered son who paid for my resurrection 
God's murdered son who paid for my resurrection. Glory to the one, God's murdered son who paid for my resurrection. Once from the dust, once from the grave, daughters and sons from the ashes you've raised, and head in our faults, even from your own face, and scatter. Our debts upon the way, and head in our faults, even from your own face, and scatter our debts upon the waves. You scatter our debts upon the waves. my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. 
this morning. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. I am found. I am found. I am yours. I am loved. I made pure. I have life. I can breathe. I am healed. I am free. Here's my. Sweet. 